Hear now the words of our Lord, as written in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? And some said, This is he. And others said, "Mm, He is like him. And he said, No, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. I received sight. Then they said to him, Well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought him, who was formerly blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him, and he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, those parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered them and said, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard that that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you're teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, 
Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who may, may who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. These are the words of the Lord. Dear Father, we thank you so much for a time where we can come, worship, listen to your word. Pray that you'd be with Tom as he preaches, that your spirit would speak through him. Father, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would rebuke us when we need your rebuke. Father, that you would instruct us through his words coming from your word. Father, we thank you that we have your word that we can read, hear, and be enriched by. Pray now that you'll be glorified in all that is done over the next hour. Praise in your son's name. Amen. I did a little research this week to find out what percentage of the human population is born blind. But I found only one source that actually provides the the most important answer to that question. If we're talking about physical blindness, Google will give you all kinds of good information. And the the research says that roughly four out of every 10,000 human beings are born blind. But if we're talking about, and by the way, that's 0.04%, it's a pretty small percent. If we're talking about spiritual blindness, 10,000 out of every 10,000 people are born blind. And there's only one source that will tell you that. It's not a popular statistic. It's not something that people want to hear about themselves. But it's exactly what Jesus asserts about mankind in this passage. In John chapter 9, Jesus speaks of only two kinds of people. Those who admit that they have been spiritually blind from birth and those who deny that they have been spiritually blind from birth. But whether we admit it or deny it, we have all been blind to God from birth. If you remember back in John 8, verse 12, Jesus said to the Pharisees, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Here in John chapter 9, when Jesus comes upon a man who was blind, physically blind from birth, he says to his disciples, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he proceeds to give them a very pointed object lesson, a real life parable about who among men has the spiritual vision to see that light and who does not. Now, the parables of Jesus always include metaphors, symbols that represent, that point to real people and real things. In this real life parable, Jesus uses real people to point to entire categories of humanity. And he uses physical blindness as a metaphor, a picture of mankind's universal blindness to the true light. 
the personal incarnation and revelation of God whose name is Jesus. That was the subject of the previous passage. The Son who is the truth. Likewise, he uses physical sight as a metaphor for the God-given ability of redeemed men to see and respond to that light. To see Jesus rightly and respond in faith. Now, what's really unusual about this passage, if you compare it with all the other confrontations that involve the Pharisees in the Gospel of John, is that there's only one verse in the passage in which Jesus is actually saying anything to the Pharisees, and only one verse in which the Pharisees are actually saying anything to Jesus. In fact, the one who's on trial in this passage is Jesus by proxy. But the one who's having to answer to the Pharisees is a blind man that Jesus healed. See, Jesus is not the one standing in this particular courtroom. And that's kind of important for understanding this passage because this chapter focuses more on what's true of men than on what's true of Jesus. It certainly reinforces some significant things that have already been presented about Christ in this gospel. But the emphasis in this chapter is on the radical difference between one man who has just been given physical sight and other men who think that they have sight and in fact do not. The unnamed man who is the focus of the Pharisees' intense scrutiny throughout this chapter starts out as a real-life symbol of every human being ever born, except one. But he quickly becomes a real-life symbol of every human being who has been reborn of God. R.C. Sproul believes that's why the man is not named. Because God wants us to remember this man as every man, and hopefully as us. I believe the key verse in this whole chapter is verse 39, toward the end. Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world that those who see may, those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. If you look in your bulletin at the message title, that's essentially the title. Sight for the blind and blindness for the seeing. And by the way, that's the outline for this message. That's why I don't need a PowerPoint. Two points. One part of this work of judgment that Jesus came to the earth to accomplish was to sort out from the mass of humanity two different groups of people. Those who do not see and those who see. Now, if you're wondering how that meshes with what I just said, that nobody sees... There's nobody who has spiritual sight. Just stick with me and and that will become clear. The first half of the judgment that Jesus came from heaven to earth to accomplish according to verse 39 is that those who do not see may see. In other words, He was sent to make blind men see. That's the first thing that happens in this passage, right? He heals a man who has been blind from birth. The first really important point that Jesus makes in connection with this healing is the reason for the man's blindness. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was 
born blind. See, their assumption is the same as the assumption of the Pharisees about this man. Later on, in verse 34, the Pharisees say to him, you were born entirely in your sins. And their, their evidence is he's blind. He was blind. Okay. The assumption is that the man's affliction was a fitting judgment from God because of sin committed either by the man or by his parents. Now, how he would have committed a sin before he was born, I'm not quite sure, unless they believed in original sin. And I kind of don't think they did. But In fact, I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> we could spend a lot of time talking about what was behind that assumption and what's wrong with it, but Jesus doesn't, so I'm not. And it would, if we did, that would distract us from a much more important issue here. Jesus' answer to his disciples is very straightforward. He says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Specifically, the work that Jesus was just about to do. Jesus is making a point here that we absolutely must not miss. In God's marvelous plan of redemption, this man's affliction was gracious. It was gracious to him, and it was gracious to a whole lot of other people for a very, very long time. Now, that is not to say that every time God chooses to display His mighty works through a human being, that human being ends up being blessed by that experience. Just ask the king of Egypt in the days of Moses if God always blesses those through whom He manifests His works. But if we recognize the role that this man's physical blindness played in his encounter with Jesus and with the Pharisees, it will redefine our grid for interpreting God's purpose in the suffering of His chosen people. And we'll start to understand the power of this real-life parable that Jesus has set before us. Let me ask you a question. Have the afflictions that you have suffered in your life been as hard to bear as what this man had suffered? Have you had to beg for your next meal every single day in good weather and bad while you're being subjected daily to cruel insults from selfish, self-righteous men, women, and children who, as they walk by, happily tell you that you deserve the life that you have? Not knowing from one moment to the next whether you might be robbed of the pocket change that people have seen fit to give to you, not because they really care for you, but predominantly just out of pity. And maybe sometimes they've blown trumpets before they've given you the money so that they would be noticed. Has your life been that hard? Let me ask you another question. Which of the characters in this living parable had been best prepared to realize that he was spiritually blind? That he was in desperate need of the sight that only Jesus can give. Was it the Pharisees? Hardly. Their whole way of life told them that they were the ones with 20-20 spiritual vision. The man's parents? No, they were, 
convinced that the Pharisees were the givers of spiritual sight, so their whole thing was about pleasing the Pharisees. If they were in good with those guys, the whole blindness thing was taken care of. How about the disciples of Jesus? Even they thought that this man must be a greater sinner than they had ever been because of his lifelong affliction. They didn't get it either. No, the person in this living parable who faced the lowest hurdle to seeing his own spiritual blindness was the man who had spent his whole life being told that he was unworthy of God because he was blind. At the end of this passage, when Jesus asked the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? This humbled man replied, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? That was the most perfect question any man will ever ask. And it came from a heart that God had made supremely ready to hear the answer. In fact, he already knew the answer. He was just waiting for Jesus to confirm it. Now, 2,000 years after this event, God is still giving spiritual sight to blind people through Jesus' healing of this one lowly man whose name we don't even know. Do you think that today, right now, this dear man is lamenting the suffering that God put him through? Or do you think he's rejoicing in how the Father glorified and continues to glorify Himself and His Son through that suffering. You think He's rejoicing that God made Him the object of that steadfast covenant love that we were looking at this morning? And do you think maybe that God would have us count the sufferings that we experience in this life as opportunities to give glory to God and as opportunities for Him to glorify Himself instead of opportunities for us to lament along with the rest of mankind that life is so hard? You think that might change some of your conversations with people if that was the approach that you took? The reason for this man's physical blindness was that God might powerfully reveal himself both to the man and through the man to lots of other people, and God's still doing that. Now let's look at how this man's blindness got healed. Do you realize that this healing was a first time ever in the history of the world event? The man's statement to the Pharisees in verse 32 singles out this miracle among all of Jesus' amazing miraculous signs and among every miraculous work that God had ever done in the whole history of mankind. The man rightly declares to the Pharisees, since the beginning of time it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Why do you think God withheld this particular miracle until His Son came from heaven to earth? You ever think about that? Prophets had raised men from the dead. God had parted seas and had blinded entire armies. <laughs> but no one had ever healed a man blind from birth. Why? Well, John doesn't specifically tell us here, but I believe he's already given us some pretty good clues. If you go back to the prologue to this gospel, who is uniquely called the Word 
who explains or exegetes God to mankind? Jesus. Who is uniquely called the true light who coming into the world enlightens every man? Jesus. Who better to give physical sight the first time to a man born blind and spiritual sight with it? How Jesus went about this healing is very significant and it's just part of the beauty of the poetry that God delivers to us through the Apostle John. I want you to set the issue of the man's blindness aside for just a moment and look at the mechanism of the healing here. If somebody grabbed a handful of dirt from the ground and spat on it a few times and then mixed it into a a real thick mud and then stuck it onto your eye sockets and then told you to go wash it off, would you wait a few hours before you washed it off? I'd be running for the water. In New Testament times, what did dirt do to people when it got on them? Well, if you look at chapter 13, about the foot washing, Jesus says if you're, all, if you're completely clean, but you have dirt on your feet, what do you need to do? Wash your feet, and then you really will be completely clean. See, what he's saying is, what dirt does to people when it gets on them is it makes them dirty. Big surprise. What does another man's spit do to you when it gets on you? Well, what did the Jews and the Roman soldiers think they were doing to Jesus when they spat upon him after his arrest? To the, to the Romans, it was just a vicious insult, but to the Jews, it was a ceremonial defilement. It rendered, it was intended to render Jesus unclean. And how could the King of the Jews be rendered unclean? When people commenting on this passage start talking about the perceived healing power of mud poultices placed on the eyes in the culture of the day, I think they're missing the point. Some things are just not culture-bound. You know two things that have, have not changed much in the history of the world? Dirt and spit. When Jesus filled this man's eye sockets with dirt, spit, mud pies, there was nothing magical about the mud. Jesus was simply painting a picture about spiritual things by using physical things. He healed this man's physical blindness by first making him physically unclean. And then He commanded him to go wash. In what? in water from the pool of water called scent. You think that's accidental? We've talked over and over in this Gospel. Over 70 times Jesus says that He was sent from the Father. He was sent from heaven to earth. He came down from heaven to earth. See, this just gets better and better. Considering all that Jesus has said over and over about where He came from, And considering what he has already said about himself as the living water that gives life to man, is there anyone here who thinks the name of this particular body of water is irrelevant to the story? This man had spent his whole life labeled as spiritually unclean. 
born, as the Pharisees told him later, entirely in his sins, now Jesus renders him physically unclean to symbolically confirm that label. To mark him as spiritually unclean. And then he commands him to go remove his uncleanness by washing in the water called scent. You starting to get the picture? This cleansing was a symbol and a preview of the man's spiritual cleansing that was to occur very soon afterward. And it is a beautiful picture for all of mankind of the only way spiritual blindness gets healed. The only way. By the way, I believe it would be a mistake to make a big deal out of the short time interval between the physical sight that Jesus gave to this man and the spiritual sight that he gives to him at the end of the chapter. Spiritual rebirth is often a process, but I do not think that God sees the parts of that process as separate independent miracles. The God, you know, for whom a thousand years is as a day. From the beginning of this chapter, this this is a man whose spiritual eyes are being opened by Jesus. So when this man goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, he's doing so as one who has been given sight in all respects by Jesus. Jesus is finishing that out as, as this proceeds, but, but that's what he represents in this passage. Now, one other little by the way. This man didn't just decide to start seeing. No man does. This is all God's work from A to Z. This is all God's doing. The first part of the judgment that Jesus came to accomplish, according to verse 39, was to make the blind see. The second part was to make the seeing blind. He said, for judgment I came into this world that those who see may become blind. There's both judgment and grace in that, in the second half there of verse 39. The last two verses of the chapter, verses 40 and 41, explain the meaning of that second judgment very well. Those of the Pharisees, verse 40, who were with Jesus, who, who were there and heard these things, said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. Now I'm going to add one little phrase to verse 41. And I'm confident that this clarification is justified because of Jesus' own words at the end of the verse. Here's the slightly amplified version. Jesus said to them, if you were blind in your own eyes, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. See, the question here is not which human beings are born spiritually blind. The answer to that is easy. All of us. The question is, which human beings admit, confess that they have been spiritually blind from birth? And the answer is, only those to whom God reveals their blindness. Those are the ones whose eyes God opens, whose sin God covers with the blood of Jesus Christ, those to whom God reveals their spiritual blindness. 
When God makes you see that you are blind, that's when you start to see God. What happened to Saul of Tarsus when he got his first exposure to the blinding light of the resurrected and ascended Jesus? He fell to the ground blind. And then God opened his eyes and he was never the same man again forever. God had had to make Paul blind to give him sight. And the man in this passage had a head start on Paul. See, we have to know that we're spiritually blind before we can be given the sight that sees Jesus rightly and responds to Him in faith. This man who had been told all his life that he was unworthy of God had a big head start on most people. I believe that this blinding work of Jesus is a very clarifying picture of the nature of repentance. The repentance that is required for salvation and that is always bound together with faith in Jesus Christ. I believe repentance is fundamentally knowing and confessing your desperate need for the cleansing and the spiritual sight and the spiritual life that only Jesus can give. And that repentance is as entirely a gift of God as faith is. God will not give sight to a man who does not agree with God that he is blind. God will not cleanse a man who does not agree with God that he is unclean. God will not remove the sin of a man who does not agree with God that he is a sinner. When God has determined to save a man who is blind to his own blindness, He first brings that man to humble repentance by making him blind in his own eyes. Then he opens his eyes. See, that's the gracious side of Jesus' declaration that He came into this world that those who see may become blind. And beloved, His mission is our mission. He says that right at the beginning of the chapter. He says, we, to His disciples, we, you and I, must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here and in chapter 8, Jesus declares Himself to be the light of the world. But in Matthew 10, He says, we are the light of the world. Jesus is no longer here bodily, right? Well, that's kind of not right. Because see, Jesus is still here and the incarnation of Jesus on this earth is His body. That's us. See, the daylight hasn't ended for this world yet because we're still here. But beloved, the time is short. The time that we have to shine the light of Jesus Christ into this pitch dark place is ending. So you and I need to think very seriously about the gracious, blinding work of Jesus Christ as we go about seeking and saving the lost on His behalf as His agents 
in His power. Now this has come up several times lately as we've gone through this, and it certainly comes up among believers in the West all the time these days. It's worth repeating. Most of the religious people of our day, including most who call themselves Christians, are very loudly insisting that you and I need to stop being so blasted intolerant. They measure godliness and Christian love and genuine care for other people by how tolerant we are of whatever people choose to do. But brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are not bold to call sin, sin, we're just driving nails into the coffins of lost people. God will not give spiritual sight to a man who is blind to his own blindness. So we had better not be helping people believe that they can see when they can't. Calling evil good? Hear me, please. Calling evil good is the single most unloving, uncaring, destructive thing that a Christian will ever do to a lost soul. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a conversation with an unbeliever who's zealously extolling the virtues of things like taking good care of the earth and its resources or fighting for social and economic equality among men or even being modest and virtuous sexually. And I just nodded approvingly as if those pursuits would really make people acceptable to God. In fact, I caught myself doing that two nights ago when we were out with the neighbor. And then the Holy Spirit brought this passage to mind. And I started talking to my neighbor about the real problem of man, which is the spiritual blindness of every human being apart from Christ. And about the only one who heals that blindness. And about the only kingdom and the only king that will put an end to the curse that plagues mankind. He wasn't buying it, but... I needed to speak the truth. Beloved, we cannot just let blind people go on thinking that they see. Because there's another side to Jesus' blinding work of judgment for those who insist that they can see. And that other side does not result in spiritual healing. It results in eternal condemnation. The next time Jesus comes into this world, all who have persisted in saying that they see will be condemned as forever blind and they will never see the light of life for all eternity. Most of mankind will be in that eternally condemned category. May God use you and me to reduce that number greatly between now and that terrible day. I want to wrap up with just a few lessons that we can glean from each of the born blind groups of people in this real life parable. First, the disciples. This first point is short and sweet. The disciples assumed that physical affliction was the mark of God's judgment for specific sin. James chapter 5 tells us that that assumption is not always wrong. It's a question that needs to be asked. But the big lesson for the disciples here was that God has a bigger purpose, an exceedingly gracious purpose in the afflictions of those 
chosen by God. As we've already seen, that purpose is that God might display His works through our suffering. That might mean that He will bring physical healing, and it might not. Or it might mean that the only healing this side of heaven that will come will come a long time after we wanted it to. But that which glorifies God eternally blesses God's children. That's how we need to interpret what God is doing in our affliction. And we need to take every opportunity to proclaim Him in the midst of that suffering. Second group of people here is the Pharisees. These guys are a very predictable lot, aren't they? (laughs) They declare themselves to be the gatekeepers of the salvation and well-being that comes from God. But they're peddling the wrong salvation. They're peddling a man-centered salvation instead of a Christ-centered salvation. They're telling people that they can be in good with God without the necessity of the death of Jesus Christ. A bloodless righteousness for men. It's not going to happen. The salvation they're pushing does not exist. They claim to see, but they are as blind as bats without the advantage of sonar. Their interaction here with the blind man now healed just drips with irony, doesn't it? They try with all their might to discredit his story about how he was healed and who healed him. They try to scare the daylights out of him to get him to recant his story. But the man is unfazed by their threats and their condemnations. And as their brief conversation with him proceeds, the contrast between them and him just gets more and more stark. Their fatal pride almost reaches its peak in verse 34 when they say to him, you were born entirely in your sins and you're, you're teaching us? And then they cast him out of the synagogue. I'm sure they were giving each other high fives as he was being escorted out. But all they had accomplished was to add jewels to the crown of righteousness of that man and to seal their own condemnation further. The very darkest expression of their spiritual blindness is in verse 40. The only verse in this passage in which they're actually talking to Jesus. They proudly and very sarcastically say to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus' response in the last verse of the chapter is the one and only thing that he has to say to the Pharisees here. He says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. The last thing in the world you want to hear from Jesus Christ is your sin remains. It's important for us to understand what these Pharisees are doing here because these guys are still here in the world. They're not called Pharisees anymore, but they're still here. The gatekeepers of man-centered righteousness, man-centered salvation, are those most bent on shutting us up. It's not atheists that are the most passionate about shutting us up, beloved. It's religious people. 
They will marginalize us. They will demonize us. And if possible, they will criminalize us. They will call our faithful proclamation of the truth a nefarious lie. They will call our love of righteousness hatred toward men. They will declare us to be enemies of all that is good. And that will all be perfectly fine. It will not be worthy of one second of our concern. Because Jesus is the only one we have to answer to. We are here to act as redeemed agents of the one who alone heals the spiritual blindness of men. We must say on behalf of Christ to every peddler of fake man-centered righteousness, if you were blind in your own eyes, you would have no sin. But because you say we see, your sin remains and you must repent. The third group of people, of blind people in this passage are the man's parents. Verses 21-22 say, They were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Those two verses tell us that when they said to the Pharisees, we don't know who healed our son, they were lying. They were doing everything they could not to be mistaken for Christ followers. They were scared to death that the Pharisees, who they saw as the gatekeepers of well-being with God, would associate them with the one who had actually healed their son. Isn't that great logic? They feared the gatekeepers of man-centered salvation so much that they betrayed the gate. They turned their back, their backs on the narrow gate, which is what the next chapter is all about. This man's parents remind me of the lame guy in chapter 5. When Jesus healed him, he showed no gratitude, no humility. He immediately ran to the temple authorities to rat on Jesus for healing him on the Sabbath. He too feared the gatekeepers of man-centered salvation instead of trusting the way, the truth, and the life. You and I will encounter many, many people who will take this approach. They will readily throw Jesus and all who legitimately name His name right under the bus if it will gain them the approval of those who think will give them well-being. We don't have to worry for one single second about what those people say to us or about us or what they do. Not one second. The last group, I'm about to finish, the last group of blind from birth people in this real life parable consists of just one man. I believe the reason Jesus doesn't say anything to the Pharisees in this chapter until the last verse is because He doesn't need to. He has a spokesperson. And it's not any of the men that He had already called to be His disciples. One of them ends up, ends up denying Him with a curse. God fixes that, but... The first time that this man is brought to stand before the Jewish leaders, he simply gives them the facts about his healing, the who, what, and when. The only statement he makes about Jesus is he's a prophet. But the second time the Pharisees summon him to testify before them, they begin with a command to him to give glory to God. (laughs) 
And that's exactly what he does. <laughs> when they marginalize Jesus by declaring that they don't know where he's from, the man's response to them is magnificent. <laughs> he says, well, here's an amazing thing. That you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. If anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind if this man were not from God. He could do nothing. They're talking about where Jesus is from and this guy's talking about who Jesus is from. He gets it. And he's putting it right in their faces. This man, this beggar, this nobody who had spent his whole life excluded from the temple because blind men were considered too unclean to draw near to God had just finally been healed of his blindness. All he had to do was play along with the temple authorities and present one little ritual purification sacrifice and he was in. So what's the very first thing he does with his newfound status? He gives it away in order to glorify Jesus Christ. To speak the truth about Jesus to power. And the Jews immediately throw him out of the synagogue, which I'm sure he knew they were going to do. They excommunicated him from the community that was supposed to be God's people. The Pharisees marked this man out as condemned. And the man himself drew a line in the sand that put his own parents on the other side of that line in enemy camp. He laid down everything for Jesus. And what did he lose? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. What are you and I willing to lay down for the one who plucked us out of everlasting darkness to bring us into His astonishing light forever? What are you and I willing to count as nothing to give glory to the light of the world? I'm going to read two verses as a prayer. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Some of you know it well. I meant to put it in the bulletin for us to read together out loud, but we will never get versions matched up. So just listen. But as I listen, please pray this with me to the Lord. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We pray this back to You, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer, our Light and our Life. For your sake and in your holy name. Amen.